You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season whether i was out west during my elk hunt south dakota mule deer hunt or my rut vacation in iowa i was on my phone using onyx maps every part of the day whether i was looking at terrain features uh on the topographic and and satellite maps that they offer on their uh Uh, on their app or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location I used Onyx Maps every single day and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map. And uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before. I had to wait till sunup and then and then you know find it that way. But that problem does not exist anymore because of onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that i think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. This is a podcast that I'm really excited about. Um, Matt's not with us this week. He's traveling, uh, consulting. Of course, kind of a little heads up to you guys. Prepare yourself for a lot of podcasts when it's just myself and a guest and Matt and a guest or Matt on the road and me in the office or vice versa because this is consulting season. And uh, so Matt is out consulting in West Virginia and Ohio this week. Um, I leave for Illinois. Uh, well, actually, I'll be in Illinois when this podcast drops. Um, and so we've got a lot of traveling ahead of us and uh, lots of, hopefully, habitat to be put on the ground. So I have returning guest, my brother, Chad. 
thanks for coming back. It's it's funny you say it's consulting season for you. It's uh, another C word for me. It's chainsaw season. Chainsaw me. season, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, that's definitely the time of the year. And, 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 you know, we've been – we ran a saw for a good bit two days ago, um, you and I, doing some edge feathering and uh, putting in a bedding thicket on a part of the farm that's been neglected over the years. And, and guys um, – it is chainsaw season. We're and getting it's still a, bow season. It's still bow season. <laughs> the heck with that. I'm already it's, over it's it. It's muzzleloader season. It's muzzleloader I mean, season. I shot a doe last night. Alternative season um, here in Missouri. But uh, it's also a, a very, a very, very great time to be putting habitat on the ground. I think uh, – so to give you guys an idea, this is – this whole podcast – because we've made so many social media posts and also um, some videos coming out on our YouTube channel. So here's my little plug. Guys, it's the time of the year where we're all a lot of guys are starting to transition back into habitat work. Go to our YouTube channel, Land and Legacy. Please subscribe. That's one big way you can help support this channel. Uh, we've got some videos dropping um, that have dropped and more to come in the future. Um, as soon as I get them edited um, on certain things like edge feathering. And because we've talked so much about edge feathering, we're going to devote this entire podcast to edge feathering. And so it's chainsaw season, which means that you can be doing some phenomenal edge feathering. Um, and maybe we ought to prioritize the work for you guys. Last week we talked about year in the life of a land manager we gave you a long list of things to do to improve the proper your property, um, and it's really a long it's a long list, but it's really not too bad for um, if you were to look at that and just say two years I'm going to follow this I'm going to do everything they said in two years your whole place has changed, um, but this week we're really talking about edge feathering and why it's important all things edge feathering. Got anything you want to add to that before we jump in? Not really. So, um, with edge feathering, it's almost, I, I feel like edge feathering is like, when do you think you first heard about edge feathering? You were looking into land wildlife management long before I was because I was seven years old. <laughs> I don't even, I'm I mean, trying to think I the saw, first time. I think I. S- probably saw it in some of the quail like the quail information from ndc yeah the, and and it's available to people in other states too the the missouri department of conservation puts out a ton of great great quail habitat information they do i mean some great pamphlets some i mean all kinds of information on things you can do that not only benefit your quail they're going to benefit everything yeah and you know that's one thing we've said it over and over on the podcast but we'll say it again because it's just kind of a repetitive, <laughs> I feel sometimes it's very repetitive, but um, it's so important that we keep pounding it out there and keep keep uh, giving that information. But when it comes to uh, edge feathering and the benefits to so many other species, that's one of the reasons why we love it so much and one of the reasons why we love the micro clear cuts or the bedding thickets, because it's beneficial to all sorts of different species but we've said it we'll say it again if if you were a deer hunter and you were solely focused on deer 
and you wanted to say one of the phrases I hate, I only care about big deer. Okay, if you said that in the past, slap yourself, all right? Now, if you were to say, I only care about big deer, um, let's then go and say, okay, that could be your mindset, but if I'm really focused on making this as as good as I could for my big deer, go ahead and say, okay, but let's focus on quail if I'm in a region that has bobwhite quail. And you were to just devote the next five years to only doing habitat work for quail, your deer would do probably better than your food plot mineral program that you have going. They would do <clears throat> incredibly uh, well off of focusing on habitat work for bobwhite quail. I don't know that you could say it too many times that you're going to see way better benefits to your deer in managing your property for quail than you will ever see from supplemental feeding and food plots. Yeah. But mainstream, that's what's pushed. Yeah. It's easy to sell. It's easy to sell a, a bag of mineral or a, a block of mineral, or it's easy to stick a deer on the bag or even food plots eat. And we yeah. love food plots, uh, but you don't see us neglecting our habitat to go to food plots. It's it, they go hand in hand for us. It's a hunting strategy for food plots. But in, in, in let's just say you're in the in the northern part of the world where you don't have bobwhite quail, and you're like, well, pff, I'm still managing for deer. Okay, well, just say that you're managing for rough grouse. Uh, I know I've said that in the past. Like you're trying to create that disturbance, a healthy forest, which is only going to create more food, more cover, more more habitat for white-tailed deer. So don't give me an excuse that you can't focus on some of these other species that that really need good habitat. A deer is so adaptable that the habitat can be poor, and they're going to adapt to it, change their range, do something. But they're probably still going to be there. A quail ain't. If you don't have good quail habitat, it's gone. You don't have yeah. them. But if you make really, really great quail habitat, your the deer, deer are going to do Your so deer are going to flourish. Your turkeys are going to flourish. Everything is. And that's what, I mean, <clears throat> we've already kind of planned out some of the stuff we're going to talk about in this. But the benefits of the edge feathering are, there's numerous benefits to white-tailed deer yep. in this edge feathering. Yes. And not only white-tailed deer, like... Like, we use edge feathering as a way to enhance the habitat, improve the habitat, provide a diversity um, within your within your farm cr by creating different plant communities or enhancing it to where there's a, a diversity of plant communities. Here, but here's one that, on the farm, on these food plots that we have edge feathered, <clears throat> what's one thing you and I have talked about seeing? Way more deer activity on no, those. Oh. Non-stop oh, in the oh, food plots. Not dealing with deer. Okay. What's the other thing we have seen Rabbits. almost nonstop? Rabbits? Yes. Yeah. You can't walk into those food plots that we've done a lot of edge feathering and not see rabbits. Yeah, especially on rabbits. trail camera. Uh, I'll, I'll share a picture coming up, but we've got that, that photo series of a rabbit bouncing around on the edge of a food plot, and then all of a sudden a coyote shows up, and then 30 minutes later a coyote's running off with a rabbit in its mouth. Compare that. Now, a lot of our stuff, like a lot of our information, we look at uh, university research. Dr. Craig Harper's got a lot of great, uh, re has done a lot of great research that we just love and, and adapted in our management system. But then there's a lot of what we do that's based on real world school of hard knocks um, that's going, 
yeah, we tried that. That didn't work. Um, or that was a huge waste of time. Or that really set us back. Or, man, that really made our deer hunting so much better and we're noticing more of this or notice, noticing more of that. that. That obviously was great for the land. Edge Feathering is one of those that universities, when, when the U.S. government has cost share options to motivate landowners to do edge feathering, that should tell you something that even they've noticed it being better. Yeah. And, and so to me, it's like the lost art of edge feathering in deer world. Like I've said this once and I'll say it again, fellas, if you're a deer guy and you want to pride yourself in being a great deer manager, if you're a great habitat manager, then you should be noticing some more key species. Like if there's a, if person A is a quote or self-proclaimed great deer guy and he doesn't have quail and then person B is a great thinks of himself as a quail hunter and he's got quail everywhere he's probably got big deer he's a better habitat manager than the guy person a who's claiming to be a great I've, habitat manager. <clears throat> i've seen i mean we've both seen habitat people preach against edge feathering be- preach yeah. against it because it's because not aesthetic. it's a predator strip <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but they forget to mention the fact that your woods should also be great habitat and not closed canopy and open Yes. It's a it's a system of thing. You can't just go in and do edge feathering and expect all to be saved. You can't go in and do that. No. You have to be managing your whole property and not just your food plots. Yeah. I think you'd make the mistake. And that's where prioritizing and going, okay. You you go in, you put in your food plots. Great. You're you're trying to make a great hunting strategy. And then if you just did the edge feathering and you didn't touch any of the other stuff, Sure, you're gonna you're gonna notice deer bedding right next to your food plot because that's the best cover in the in the area. They're gonna that's f- not ideal. They're gonna fawn in that. Yeah, you're gonna have nesting in that. Of course, that's gonna draw predators. Yeah, if you're not managing the rest of your property. Yeah, but at the same time, at least if that's if you have a ten row strip, usually if you do edge feathering correctly, and you don't then look at it and say, "Well, I could get ten more yards of my food plot." And you end up pushing it out. If you do edge feathering correctly and you're worried about predators now running along and you you still are giving the fawns or a mama doe a better chance at raising a fawn by having more adequate habitat than if you were to live by the well, you're just creating a predator strip and not do it anyway. I I just thought of another one that we I guess you should preface this with the you've posted enough pictures on edge feathering that people should realize what it is but with social media you see all kinds of just yeah. garbage yeah we should say i that saw first. i saw a picture posted a while back and i've seen it a couple times of talking about edge feathering which i would call reverse edge feathering where they'd went in to the timber and cut the trees out to plant their food plot farther into the timber yeah. that's not edge feathering yep that's putting a food plot in the shade that's yep. not edge feathering. No, edge. So edge feathering. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this and paint a picture for somebody, but it's it's like the name says. We're feathering the edge. It's changing the transition from one habitat type to another, and a lot of times you see uh, a crop field going right into mature forest. And so that would be basically a two-layer edge, in my opinion. 
Um, and I'm not sure anybody's talked about the layers of edge, but that's just what we do for a sim simplicity's sake. You've got a two-layer edge. You've got crop field, pasture ground, or food plot, which is it could be six inches tall to <laughs> lip high, whatever it is. You've got one layer. And then you go into another edge or ecosystem landscape, and that's the mature forest. So it's really a cliff. Like a single step. A single step in a staircase or a cliff. You're falling off. I like what you said earlier. It's a cliff. And feathering, edge feathering is trying to make it have more steps in that staircase. So it could be going from mature forest down to young forest, down to shrubs, down to brambles, down to grasses and forbs to food plot. Um, and so that's feathering the edge. You're trying to take a cliff and change it into, it could be 30 yards, it could be 10 yards, it could be 50 yards, and where you have multiple steps gradually falling down into the food plot or crop ground or pasture. So that's edge feathering. When we're talking historical, the historical side of it, we're talking trying to replicate nature. And so bear with me, we'll give a little bit of a trip down history lane. If you look at historical landscape, go a web soil survey, and you find prairie or grassland, whatever it is, and then you find forest somewhere else. If you look in between what was grassland to forest ground, you're going to see a transition. And that transition is going to be oak savanna, oak woodland, woodland, mixed. Basically, it's like, it's a mixture. So if you were to color coordinate that, you're going to go from white of grassland to black of timber. And somewhere in the middle, you got a lot of gray. And that's what we're looking at. Uh, of oak savanna, oak woodland, you've got a mix of grasses and forbs and trees transition into more of a forest, more of a tree-dominated landscape to transition back all the way over to more of a grassland forb-dominated landscape. And that's what we're trying to do, but on a micro scale of feathering the edge. So and it, it honestly naturally exists very little anymore. Uh, Almost. Very, very little. Yeah. The places that I see it the most are like the Flint Hills in Kansas, where yep. they still do large, burn it by the section, and let it rip right into the timber. And I think those, one of those big differences on those historical landscapes were um, deer, wildlife had such a big range. Herd animals. They herded up and they moved around. Like Everything moved in a very major scale. We're trying to create a very small ecosystem on our farm and so instead of having this drastic miles and miles of an edge and it could be even it could be as simple as a grassland and forest and the fire as a fire swept across that prairie it was a big raging fire but as it hit kind of going into more trees more um, woody stems the fire wasn't as severe because of the intensity of the the amount of um fuel load you know you go from t short grass prairie to tall grass prairie tons of fuel fire rips across the grassland if you've ever witnessed that and then it slams into what we're doing is slamming that into the forest and you're going to get top killed trees stump sprouts and that's a softer edge we're replicating that with a chainsaw yeah i mean it's it's just naturally you're going to have that process stopped when you chunk the land up the way it's been chunked up. Yes. It was a large-scale process in, in, in nature historically where the fire could go for 
long distances and rip into these things. Now it's so chunked up. Even in the prairies now, the prairie sections that we have, like Matt and I went the other day, you could see that somewhat of that edge feather where it's the shrubby cover coming out. But just the way that we manage our prairies now, there's very little heavy burning into that timber. Because it, it doesn't <laughs> slam into it. <laughs> the prairies I've been on in Missouri are like a square mile or half yeah, square mile yeah. where you've so got a roadway in the way. Yeah. And, and then it goes our, to p- private ground. Yeah. So yep. it's very little of that actual where it goes into the timber where it does step to a savanna or woodland type setting. Yep. It goes straight to close canopy timber again. Yep. And so, you know, historically, we're just replicating that by feathering the edge with a chainsaw and then reintroduce fire to keep it maintained. But we're trying to, as it all comes down, what are we trying to do? We're trying to add diversity on the landscape because historically we had a very diverse landscape. And you may say, well, the grassland's not very diverse. Well, it is when you look at the actual species within that grassland. And a forest is very diverse when you look at the actual species, when it's maintained correctly or managed correctly. When it's an actual woodland and not when it's actual canopy. woodland. And that's a whole other, open up a whole other can of worms to yeah. go on. If you look at a landscape that gets dominated by one species, that's when you see it may not happen right away. But at some point, you see a lot of disease happen to where it's like, I would like to say, in my honest opinion, God's saying, this isn't right. Here's a disease. Here's a bug. And 90% of these trees are going to die. Because what happens when those trees die? Other stuff grows. All of a sudden, it's a, I mean, even even in the timber where you see one tree die, what happens? First thing that comes in, blackberry briars. Yeah. Yeah, little black raspberries. Yeah, you start to see regeneration of other trees sprouting. I mean, that's diversity is added. That's why when tornadoes happen, sometimes it's it's devastating. Hopefully, nobody's hurt, no properties damaged. But when you see trees laid over, it's like, well, it's horrible. But the wildlife are going to flourish now. You lose some timber value. Yeah, that's that's why I'm a fan of cutting. Make the money while you can, and then improve the habitat. Same point. So there's the historical kind of background of edge feathering, but now we're going into or historical background of the landscape and how that relates with edge feathering and how we're using edge feathering, why we're using it. And so going into the two layers, let's talk a little bit about the layers. You've got a two layer. I want every listener out there to picture your farm and picture your edges. 95% of them that you're going to find are going to be a hard edge. You're going to have crops, pasture, food plot, maybe old field, which that's a little bit better. And then big trees. How many times have you seen places that you've got more layers? And the layers could be as one layer is mature trees. Um, and that's, you know, a mature mature forest depending on species. It could be 40 to 60, maybe even 80 foot tall, whatever that is. And most of the time it's going to be pretty even age. It's going to be, you know, you, you draw a line across the top. It's not going to vary much. It's going to all be pretty close to 40 to 80 foot. And then you've got the field, which is anywhere from lip high to 3 foot tall to corn being 8 to 10 foot tall. And then harvested, so it's pretty much 
the same. And that's a two-layer edge. That's that's almost the default setting that you see with everybody's ground. Um, even ours. We've even, got we've got fields and food plots that yeah. still this day, and it's and, a product and, of we could go in and edge feather them, but they're probably a lot of a lot of those on ours are because they're there's timber. Value. And I would say, I'd say over half our food plots have a softer edge. Yeah. Um, we're in a position where we need to cut some timber for yeah. harvesting, but we haven't That's yet. What I'm saying we've got some that yeah. are that hard edge. But I think but it's, it's a product. It's very having. interesting, and we'll use some of our real life examples here. Um, but so you've got one layer of the f- mature forest, another layer of the field crop pasture, whatever it is. You can add other layers by forbs and grasses, and that's where you see a lot of these uh, CRP contracts, CP38, uh, uh, various ones that are grasses, and that's that buffer strip. Um, and they're using it for erosion control, and that's another big benefit of having edge feathering to where you get these more herbaceous plants, grasses and forbs, um, around your perimeter. Um, so Which that's also seen as a benefit. I've seen articles talking about the buffer strips having pollinators in oh, those for sure. and seeing an increase in, in yield in yield in their crops because of the pollinators. Yes. So you've got forbs and grasses, which could be another layer. Um, you've got brambles, which could be another layer of, you know, black raspberry, black ras- uh, black raspberry, blackberry. <laughs> um, Greenbrier. Greenbrier, various brambles. Um, and so that's one thing. Another layer you could add to it shrubs obviously by now they know how much we love shrubs but you could have even sumac but um, i mean you've got various heights in in the shrub for sure you could have sumac which depending on what species variety species of sumac it could be a little bit shorter or taller um and then you've got plums which can vary on age or dogwoods even um, American Beautyberry. There's all Hazelnut. kinds of hazelnuts. I mean, when the list goes on and on about shrubs. Um, and then you've got young forests. So it could be as simple as just uh, a transition from, when we say young forest, it could be a tree that's uh, been stump sprout or cut or burned and top killed, and, and now it's only 10 foot tall. And that could range from 5 to 20 foot tall. And the brambles being from 3 to 6 foot tall. And the shrubs being from three to ten foot tall um forbs and grasses of one foot to eight foot tall and if you lay all that out and if you were just to draw a straight line look at a flat field and you were to plant shrubs and you were to plant trees and they were in the younger stage of life from one to i don't even know 15 foot year or 15 years old um and then you go in with brambles they're all going to have different heights depending on the species, depending on their age, uh, depending on how much nutrients they have. And if you were to slam all those together in between your food plot and your mature forest, you're going to have a very sawtooth staircase, a staircase with lots of steps. And you think of it not just a step down with different heights as you come from the mature timber down. If you have different species, you also have various heights throughout that edge, throughout the steps some farther in is taller, some farther out is taller, depending upon the species that you have. Yeah, and, and not only not only are you adding diversity to that, uh, to that area from height level, you add diversity for a whole long list of other things. With the forbs, flowers, you've got a diversity of 
insects that you're attracting, which are going to flower at different points of the growing season. So therefore, you've got different insects coming in to that area throughout the growing season. So if you have forbs that are flowering in April, or even the plums, the shrubs are flowering during April or May, they're attracting insects, which are providing food for bobwhite quail, turkeys, and other songbirds, um, and even other reptiles or amphibians, if you want to really go which into that kind in of management can be food for these which can be food well. for turkeys and quail as well this is the circle so you have more food available and then if you've got shrubs um they're providing let's just say if it's a plum it's dropping fruit in late summer for the wildlife for the deer especially if we really want to go back to deer management dropping food during um, late summer which could take some of your pressure browse pressure off your food plot because now there's soft mass available um you've got flowering forbs which could be food during um early spring before your food plots have even germinated so you're providing additional forage you've got grasses which can help provide cover year round fawning cover fawning cover to late winter cover. cover uh and then you've got um those well, same shrubs, which provided fruit during the growing season, have now providing woody browse during the dormant season, and all, all and, of that is and a. You hear this term thrown out, but this is a. It can also be a thermal cover in the summer, protecting them from the heat, your yep. quail and all that. But then, and also, kind of a thermal cover in the winter as well, where it's, I mean, dependent upon the species. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so you go with a wide variety, diversity within your edge. And it may only be 20 yards, but there's way more diversity within that 20 yards than there is anywhere else probably on the landscape. And it goes with that phrase, dear creatures of the edge. How many times have you heard that? All the time. Is it because I think Dr. Craig, Craig Harper has done phenomenal with this way of thinking of are deer really creatures of the edge or are they just on the edge more because that's where the some of the best habitat is and it it kind of is a deep thought of going are we wrong about saying deer creatures of the edge are they only there because that's where they can the best ability to survive they have this diversity of benefits and that's that's where also you throw in what we said earlier about doing the edge feathering is not a hundred percent problem solver no you can't just do the edge you have to manage that timber too yeah and and that's that's where you throw the you kind of have some of these diversity benefits throughout your timber as well and not just in the edge it's a major you you will face a problem if you go in and you plan a food plot and then you watch our podcast or listen our podcast watch a video see a social media post that's edge feather you're like i'm going to do some of that and all of a sudden you go and do 20 yards around your food plots well, that maybe that probably just became the best cover on your place, and now you might kick out some deer every time you go to the food plot, and you're like, "I don't want them bedding on my edge." Yeah. Well, that might be the only that might be the best cover. If that's the only cover and the best bedding cover, they're going to bed there. That's why I would definitely do bedding thickets before I did edge feathering. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, you don't want like them to be the picture you just posted here was it yesterday? Yesterday of the edge that we cut. You posted the edge, but that's not all we cut. Yep. We we went 
Mm. Well, it extends out to. And that's kind of a next step. Like, I think I don't, I, I won't even give information or an estimate, but the government contracts for edge feathering. It's like, it's like a set. It's very cookie cutter. It's like chink. You you just like stamp yeah. a spot on the field and say, we're going to edge feather there and stamp a spot on the field there. They count so many feet wide edge feathering. So many feet wide so edge feathering. So many feet wide of edge feathering. And then they count it as an acre, as acres. Yes. Like they figure that out for feet of edge feathering and then feet of width and, and figure it as a set acreage. Yes. And, and it's like one of those where it's just like a section and you section, you do like 50 yards on the edge of this field and you go up another half a mile and do another 50 yards. And it's like, that's great. That's an attempt. That's, that's a, a it's a start. But it's yeah. not a complete. In, project. in effect, you still have a straight hard edge. edge. Yes, you, you have soft edge in a very section. That's why, I, like, I guess you, we can get into it now on the how how we go about cutting the edge. Yeah, but and, a lot of our edge feathering is not a okay. I'm 20 yards off this field. I'm going to cut these. Yeah, it's, it's it, I go in and you, and this reinforces. You've said it a couple times the last couple of podcasts. Learn. Your tree species. Yeah. Learn your plant species. We walk in and it's like, okay, those offer me very little value at this height. I'm going to drop those. And I'm going to go 100 yards off the food plot if it's nothing but sassafras and persimmons that are so tall and and dogwoods and stuff like that. If there's no crop tree, I'm going to go on past them. Yep. It may be a big strip into there. It's so like then, I said, think of a, like, I always think of uh, Table, not Table Rock, Oz, uh, Lake of the Ozarks. If you look at Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri, you, you look at that shoreline, it's a very sawtooth effect. Like, you can just look and see little coves and little bays and little drainages dumping out. It's not a straight, it's not like Okeechobee Lake. It's it's a very sawtooth edge. And if edge feathering, when you're doing it, um, you may see a very sawtooth effect where if you find a pocket that goes 50 yards off straight line away from the food plot that's junky timber, like you said, go cut it all. And you may find a, a big uh, a vein of really nice white oaks that runs almost to the edge of the food plot. You can leave those. You may only have an edge feather that's 10 five. yards wide, yeah. 5 yards wide. Yeah. Because there's a big tree right there that's a really nice tree. And it may be raining acorns during the during yeah. the fall. And, and I can guarantee you if you do this edge feathering around it and reduce the competition, it's really going to drop acorns. So you may, have, you may have a food plot going right to the edge of this big white oak, but then 20 yards down you've got a, a vein that runs 50 yards back that's just all cut. And it's a very soft transition. I mean, if you look at aerial images satellite images and you look at you can clearly see field to trees in most places but if you look at a property that's had some timbering done i can think of a property pretty close to the family farm that had like a a six acre clear cut five years ago and 20 years ago there was a 10 acre clear cut you look at that one it kind of throws you a little bit for a loop going i don't know what that looks like because it's varied in height there's clearly a difference there, but I don't know if it's three foot tall or 20 foot tall. And that's why scouting with aerial images is tough um, because you really don't know if it's 20 foot tall, five foot tall, 
30 foot tall, 50 foot tall. And, uh, and that's where with this edge, if, if you do edge feathering and you veined it out and you look at it, eventually five, 10 years from now, if you look at an aerial image of the farm, you would be like, Ooh, that looks weird. I don't know what's going on there, but there's clearly a difference. And, uh, that's where the coastline or the, the edge of our food plots will look a lot different because there and is no, there, what is it? There is method to the madness. And, and ideally, I guess, and this kind of touched on something we, we'd mentioned before we started is ideally you, you would have these in stages to where, because yet again, this is another one of those things that you can't, you can't go in one time, cut it and yep, I'm good for the rest of my life. This is going to be, this is going to be what we need for the rest of my life. This is one of those that ideally you would have various stages of edge feathering on yet again, another diversity thing, but you could have various stages of edge feathering on every food plot. Yeah. And so you've got different stages, stuff that's just cut stuff. That's five years old and have it to where you go back through and you're constantly ideally you have it planned out to where you can go in. Okay. This one I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit next year. I'm going to hit these edges next year, two years from now I'm hitting these edges and keep them to where they're constantly, you constantly have that change to where you're setting it back. Absolutely. And you, you're going to hopefully set somewhat back with fire. Yep. But then you're going to have to go back through with a chainsaw and and set a lot of those stump sprouts and stuff back. Yeah. You're continually. Because you don't want it to be forest. You yeah. want it to be diverse with brambles, grasses, forbs, shrubs. You're going to have the stump sprouts again. You're going to have all of that. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, deer are going to browse your stump sprouts. But you hope that the deer herd's not so high that yeah. the stump sprouts can't. And that's a pretty good indicator that either, A, the habitat is poor or you have a high deer density as if your stump sprouts in your in your edge feathering <laughs> yeah. can't grow you, out of reach. If your stump sprouts can't grow out of reach, you need to kill more deer. Kill There's more nothing. deer or put more food somewhere else on the property. Stop stop just planting food yeah. plots. Yeah. And that's it touches on another thing that we did a video yes, day before yesterday where we cut the edge feathering that yep. will release at some point. Yep. And kind of one thing you and I talked about is we don't like to cut everything. It's not a one one swath, one yep. cutting deal. It's not a project that gets completed I, year I, one. We'd like to go in and cut cut our edge feather or edge feathering, but leave you leave some of the trees for cutting later on. That's for right. For a year or two down the line. So you're constantly adding that fresh stuff to it. I don't want to go in in one swoop, cut everything I want cut, and be done. I want to go in and I'll cut cut a pretty good chunk of it, but you leave some of those scattered trees because if you're burning, you're going to end up just by nature, you might kill some of them. Yeah, you might right. do some of that. You might go in later and realize, unlike some of them, if it's younger trees, I'll leave four or five there kind of close together that are competing with each other. And four or five years down the line, be like, okay, I want those two gone. They're the, they're the, the, I guess unhealthy trees of that group. I'm cutting those out and letting the others really go. That's right. Yeah, it's like, how many times we saw this with, if you go into a piece of timber, and anybody who's ever put in a new food plot has probably seen this, but 
you go into a chunk of timber and you just doze out an acre and make a food plot. And all of a sudden, year two, three, you see these big leaning trees, boom, leaning way out in the food plot or falling over. And you're like, why are, it's like they were all weak or something. And it's, it's kind of, could be a couple of things. And we talk about this a lot with heavy TSI, especially like when doing woodland restoration. You don't want to cut too many trees because it's like a, a shock to the system for those yeah. trees to be like, whoa, where did all the sun come from? I'm getting, uh, I'm not healthy anymore because I'm a tree who was growing in the forest and now I'm out here in the sun well, all by myself. You see that, and I see that in Arkansas where I'm at in our, we call them, they're a, they seed tree. And yeah. it's where they, they're knocking, it's mature timber that they're leaving scattered big pines throughout to theoretically reseed the area. Yeah. And you have those trees that have grown with competition with surrounding trees their whole life that when you get rid of that competition and open it up, they don't have that support either. And a strong windstorm comes through and it lays a bunch of them over because they're used to having that support of all the trees next to them. Now all of a sudden wind comes through and they're not as strong. The root systems aren't as strong because they've grown up with that support all around them, yeah, and it knocks them down. Yeah, and so that's why staggering out your thinning. The first year, we get pretty aggressive, but what we do is cut a lot of junk. Yeah. Um, I do that with just about all of our cutting. TSI, yeah. everything. Cut the junk. To me, it's easier to go through and cut all of the junk that I don't want first. Yes. Because you can create that. eyes to see the rest of the trees what you want to cut after that yeah so year one typically for us is cut the junk because you can nitpick your timber a lot easier once you've cut the junk out yeah it's hard like when you're looking at so many trees so many stems and it's all junk mixed with trees that could potentially one day be good you're going you almost get cross-eyed because you look at so many you're like i don't know which one it's easier just the first year to cut all the junk and and sometimes you can see within, for sure, five years, if you cut the junk out, you'll see those one trees that just blossom and just yeah. take off. And like, all right, that tree's left. That's staying. I'm cutting these three or four around it. That's right. That's right. And and I think, you know, that, that transition us into, we talk a lot, and our clients know this, closed-edge feathering, open-edge feathering. And for, in short, closed-edge feathering is cutting trees parallel with the edge of the field to create a barrier of trees to steer deer to where they have to use a different part of the field. You're creating almost a a barrier or a fen- a natural fence to where they're going to come now na- they're going to use the ends to enter the food plot. And that's a great way to steer deer closer to the food plot. So if you're hunting a 2-acre food plot, a 6-acre food plot and you're going they always come back there and they kind of they use this whole edge and it's really hard to bottleneck them down. Well, close edge feather it. And now you create that barrier to where there's a pretty. They you don't want to walk through it. They don't want to walk through it, and you have a pretty good idea which way they're coming through now. Um, we did that, like we've done that in the past, where it's like, well, okay, they come out from three sides of the field. Well, we did a big J hook edge feather, and now they come out from two sides or one side. And this is the beautiful thing about it. The deer still use the food plot, but now we've created, they'll use even the edge of your edge feathering, 
for winter browse. Like they may use it for going into it and use the edges of it to browse during the during the winter months or early spring before food plots are growing and native vegetation is really taken off. Um, but your rabbits, your quail, your turkeys, any of your other small game species can still use it. It may be closed edge feathering for the deer, but it's still phenomenal habitat for those other species. And they can move freely as absolutely anywhere they want. And that's why, and if you're using prescribed fire on the landscape, you may think, well, aren't you going to just burn up everything you just dropped? This is where we use hinge cutting a lot more than anywhere else on the property. We use hinge cutting with our edge feathering. We still don't hinge cut more than 50% of what we cut. I don't. I would say occasionally, if it's really important to get that barrier there, you might drop more than 50%. But that's only in a fence row type setting. Um, you don't do a 20-yard wide off the food plot where everything's hinged, or you you will create a a, a wall. A wall, <laughs> basically. Because even <laughs> even not hinging, just dropping it, it it's a pretty good barrier. That generally, yeah. what we'll do, and like in the pictures that you posted of the edge feathering, you can't see it, but we went through. Or I guess one of the other days, and part of it was because I could get through easier to cut the rest, but I cut trails through it. Two or three trails through that stuff where we wanted the deer to come out. Yeah. And I cut multiple lanes going through that to where I was already seeing the deer are using those to That's come right. through, to come into the food plot. Yeah. And it really is that easy. I, yeah. I think it's, I don't want to say it's a, it's a dead giveaway or it's a, just super easy, but it is one of the easiest ways to manipulate deer travel patterns. We've done it in the middle of the timber. Yeah. Go in and do a line yeah. of trees and watch them walk around it. Yeah. Because they're generally going to take the path of least resistance. Yeah. They're lazy just like we are. And so that's where closed edge feathering can really be a great tool in your hunting strategy of going, okay, this is where I'm going to improve habitat for other wildlife as well as steer deer and the deer still benefit from it. Um, another huge thing about edge feathering. And if you get this transition is you want to th- picture if you're standing in the food plot and you're trying to see into the timber, if you have that two layer edge, you can probably see back into the timber, but if you've created a four or five, six layer edge with all this different stuff you probably can't see into the timber and the the best way to tell it is think of it as if you've got a food plot that early november you've got does really using that food plot would you rather the buck go 30 yards off in the woods walk look out in the food plot nothing out there. there move on i mean how how often do you see deer do that Come all to the, the edge time. or stand or they stand like early October when you're hunting, when you're on food sources. How many times do you see the deer that come to the 30 yards out of the food plot and stand in the woods and wait till dark and then come out? Yeah, happens all the time. You hear stories like that a lot. Now picture that same buck walk to the edge or stand back in the timber. He now can't see into the food plot better chance he's going to get to where he can see. So he walks to the edge, he sticks his nose out, and he's standing at the very edge of the forbs and grasses looking out on the food plot. Well, hopefully by this point, he's in range. You can take your shot. 
or he's in another spot, he's a little bit out of range, you hit him with a little soft grunt, you pique his interest in that, he has to come find you to look into that food plot. Therefore, he works his way out. It's a lot more, you, you not only improve the habitat, now you've greatly increased your hunting strategy well, for success. The other thing you can do too is even if they, I mean, say, yet again, November, they're going to scent check that field. Yep. A lot of times they can walk on the edge and see, well, there's no deer there, and move on. If they can't see in the food plot, they have to swing downwind of that food plot. Yeah. And if you're and where on are you the sitting? downwind side of that? <laughs> downwind side of it. Yeah. In the travel corridor. And That's you're right. picking them off as they're coming through. And I guess I was looking at that, what we cut the other day. One of the best ways is walk 40 yards off your food plot and look into it. Yeah. Can you see everything in it? You probably don't have enough edge. Yep. And even when you cut, like, we're cutting right now when there's no leaves on the trees. Now, keep in mind, you think January, everything's dead, everything's dormant. It's just like, oh, it's a depressing time of the year. There's no food available. A lot of those understory trees and even some of the, like big mature hickories are already having little buds forming and those little buds have turned into leaves later on. And, uh, like I cut that hickory yesterday. It had buds as big as a bigger than a pencil eraser. That's food for the deer. Yeah. And the flowering dogwood is one of my favorites this time of year. It's oh, got it's buds, big old bud on them, big old buds and deer just devour them. Sassafras. Within a, within a day or two. Yeah. I mean, if if I've been running a chainsaw a lot, I can I can count on the fact that the next time I go out there to cut, there's going to be deer tracks everywhere. For I've sure. I've seen it in the snow where if I've been in the middle of winter cutting, that's what they're looking for winter for woody browse. Yeah. And if I'm cutting, it can be in the snow, and it, it'll be stuff that I cut the very next day. They've been there all night long. That's right. Yep. And And so – uh, we say that I've said this in the social media posts and videos on YouTube, but it's immediate food because of the amount of woody brows that you put on the ground. It's high quality food, too. It's high quality food. And it's also immediate cover. And so, for like rabbits and even the deer, if you're cutting a bunch of stuff, there's immediate cover, there's immediate food. But it's also going to be. If you've hinge cut or even the stump sprouts are going to sprout back the next growing season, so you have food for years to come, but at the same time as you've got those trunks of trees, those treetops, even the stump sprouts, you've got cover for years to come. And because of the increased amount of sunlight hitting the forest floor, you've got other herbaceous plants growing to where you get more food and more cover. It's a benefit for years to come and not just – and that's that's part of why, like, especially this time of year, I see I see you guys get a lot of questions about hack and squirt. You know, it, it's kind of been a big deal here lately. A lot of people talking about hack and squirt. Oh, hack and squirt the timber. It's safer. Why, why not hack and squirt this? Okay. Yeah. It's it's easier. I can cover more ground. Okay, so people, let's dissect that. And, and I think a lot of people, they look at cutting trees and they think, well, it's, it's just wood. I don't want my deer eating wood. I don't <laughs> want them eating wood. Yeah. But cut a tree down, say dogwood. Cut a tree yeah. down right now and tell me, and take that last inch of the stem off and tell me that's wood. Yeah. You think of like, it's an old, it's an axe handle. Like, it's not, it's very tender. It's very um, nutritious. Those uh, buds are full of moisture. Tons I mean, of moisture. And yeah. it's like, uh, you cut that stuff and they eat it the next day. And it's like, 
Well, you know, or let the like, deer tell deer. you what they want yeah. to eat. I mean, I could go. We've got standing beans in yep. places right now, and I can guarantee you, I could go right next to it and cut a lot of this down, and the deer would go and eat those buds. They would probably eat them every before time. The yeah, that's what I'm saying. Pot. Yeah, they would key in on the stuff that I've cut Absolutely. over the soybeans. Yeah, and I think that's where like we had clients, and I want to do this this year, but whenever deer season's over, because it's not legal, but. Um, Last winter, they had snow on the ground. They went and dropped a whole cluster of different trees, understory trees. The understory trees typically have more buds than your um, big oaks because the understory trees have to get that start early in the spring to make their blooms to flower before it's closed canopy and they're in the shade of the big oaks. So that's why you'll see that. But they cut a bunch of those understory trees, and then they dumped a bag or two of corn out on the ground. And in the snow, they went back a couple days later. There was way more tracks around the woody browse than there was in the snow uh, at the corn pile. And that's because the deer selected that woody browse over the corn. And that's not saying that they're not going to eat that. No. No. But they're a, they eat diversity. They do. They eat a diverse diet. I mean, we saw it last year in Iowa when we were chainsawing. When deer were walking through standing soybean fields, and pawing through snow to eat little forbs underneath the snow. Yep. Any green they could find. That's the phrase that I've used a hundred times. You can take that, a horse to water, but you can't make him They drink. were in that TSI'd stuff, previously TSI'd stuff, and eating the woody brows. Yeah. And it's just like, you, there's, they gorge on this stuff. And you so think about it enough. like this. You've done the edge feathering. You've TSI'd your timber. You've done some bedding thickets. You basically have a plethora of food through your timber that's usually wasted space for a lot of guys. Then you add food plots to that. You've got to where the deer aren't focused just on your food plots to eat. Now it's the ice cream plant, so if it's there, they're going to come to it. But you're adding food on the ground, which herbaceous cover is phenomenal food during the growing season, late growing season, when that's one big stress level, late summer. Another big stress level is late winter which woody browse helps fill that void herbaceous native vegetation helps fill the void during the other stress period so you're adding food during two of the biggest stress periods but at the same time you've got the ice cream plants which are still going to be highly selected during hunting season a classic example is our fiasco food plot yeah we've done a lot of work around that food plot in the last few years for sure there's a lot of woody browse we've burned it two springs ago i think two yeah something yeah. like that so there's a lot of woody brows there's a lot of fresh growth we've really opened the canopy we've never had now we had a little bit of rain too but we've never had beans like we did this year in that no and we've never, never had deer activity like no. we've had like matt late season matt. and that's the other side of it i mean that was we had deer really using the timber early when the beans were growing so the focus was not so solely on those soybeans they were they were eating the woody browse a lot and allowing those soybeans to grow to when it did get droughty and a lot of our native browses started to get waxy then they started to eat the soybeans but by then the soybeans had grown to the point that i mean we didn't have to have a fence we didn't put an electric fence around them. No. Didn't need it. They focused on the woody brows until the soybeans were to the point where they could withstand the brows. And then 
flip it around to late season. There's still some growth in that. There's a few standing beans in there, but there's a ton of woody browse through the timber and a lot of cover to where the deer are using that. And then Matt has that hunt in that food plot. We had a pretty good hunt there this year. Dad and I had a decent hunt there. Um, during There's been gun a lot season. of deer activity in that this winter. Yeah. No shock. Yeah. And at the same time, that's the same plot where we had the pictures of the rabbit bouncing along the edge. Now we had pictures of rabbits in almost all the food plots on the family farm. Rabbits bouncing along the edge. Because most of the food plots have had some sort of habitat work close by. Like you burned um, Deer Cane Ridge, Amarillo food plot had... The burn, growing season burn there in late summer, Yeah, a lot of rabbits around that one. You go into Little Piney, that's like one of the softest edges that we have. That's oddly enough, and it's not so odd, but that's where I jumped the quail this year a um, couple weeks ago. Dad jumped quail in the fiasco food plot that you were where just talking about. So much work. Um, I mean, let the quail tell you where the good habitat yeah. is. If they're not there, the habitat's not good for quail, which means yeah. the habitat's probably not in the diverse quality to where um what they would need to survive and rabbits just all over um kingsville food plot rabbits all all around it because you edge feathered the heck out of it this past winter yeah and and it's and it's one like you talk about the rabbits in the same sense and i think you kind of touched on it you were going to share some of the pictures but you tell me why does more why should a deer hunter care that there's more rabbits on the landscape yeah, you tell me how many pictures, because you were the last, you you went through the cards on the farm. Yeah, I would. How many pictures of bobcats and coyotes did we have? Quite a few. And five years ago, five years ago, tell me what our reaction would have been. Oh, five years ago, that. we'd have been like, we need to trap, get the traps. We got to get the traps out. We'd have been spending hours. Of our day, instead of me chainsawing, we'd have been setting traps. Yeah. And and you tell me what you saw those, what you see them carrying through. Yeah, they're carrying rabbits. They're chasing rabbits. They're chasing rodents. They're, they're looking for rats. Rabbits, and there's rats. There's mice. It's And that's what it's telling to me. You look at the quail people, that rolling, isn't it rolling hills? Rolling plains. Rolling plains out of quail Texas. Research quail Texas. Quail Research Center they're They've got a theory that... They can base their quail populations, their future quail populations in the next year on the cotton rat populations. Yeah. If they've got a lot of cotton rats, they expect to have a lot of quail. Yeah. Because it's tied into habitat, but then also their predators are focusing on the cotton rats. Yeah. It's like there's plenty of food. I think, I don't know who coined the phrase, and I don't know, if if I did know, I'd give them a credit, but buffer prey species. Um, And that's basically the more rabbits, the more mice the more voles the more what i say rats and rodents basically small game species small game mammals they're buffer prey for coyotes and and our other predators because they're going to chase those easier ones than go and try to run down an adult deer out of a food plot and strength and grab it by the neck remember the photo series we had a few years ago with that rabbit that was just like hopping you could see it, and it was like it hopped around, and it was like, well, that thing looks stupid because then you see a bobcat in the picture. Yeah. And then it just grabs it. Yeah, like, and that's what that's what pretty close to this sequence of photos is. A, it's like it's just bouncing around, and, and rabbits aren't that smart. Like 
they're just bouncing around at the edge of the food plot, and all of a sudden, boom, here comes a predator and snatches it up. That isn't. That doesn't affect me. That doesn't cause my blood pressure to rise. That doesn't make me mad at coyotes because too much research has proven that regardless of how hard we trap, they're still going to be there. Like you may knock a temporary void, and Kyle and Frank had an excellent podcast on this a few weeks back. You may knock a temporary void, but it's not going to be that long-lasting because they're just going to vacuum right back in. The hole is going to be filled too. I mean, yeah. We don't want to keep going on the predators because we could talk for hours on this, but other things are going to replace, say, possums and coons. They're going to eat skunks. Yeah. I mean, they're going to eat. They're going to eat snakes. That's yeah. what I meant to say. They yeah. Eat snakes. Yeah. Snakes are nest predators, just the same. And Kyle had another great uh, blog. Go yeah, check he out mentioned the blog. That in the blog, didn't he? Yeah. That if yeah. you kill one thing, you're going to see another population increase. What but we do know is adding diversity on your landscape through plant communities increases the amount of holding capacity of your That's prey what species. I was going to say is we can circle right around to managing for quail yeah. as opposed to deer. You manage for quail, you're going to see these buffer prey species populations explode. That's right. Your rats, your mice, your rabbits, all of those are going to explode to the point where if you do have these other predators, that's what they're going to eat. Yeah, and I, I would say this for a... Because this whole Land and Legacy in this podcast was created for more uh, deep thinking in our game management, habitat management strategies. Because there's a lot of faults, there's a lot of holes in some of the modern day management. Um, And one big hole is product endorsement rather than habitat endorsement. Um, You see that too often, you see that too much with with people and with, with mindsets of push a product rather than push habitat improvement. And uh, one of the big ones that I see, like, when we're talking about predators, we're talking about prey species, buffer prey species, is also the the idea of overpopulation of deer to where I question someone's overall holistic mindset if in one breath they breathe trapping and in the next breath they're breathing, I have too many deer. Yeah. Because that really is... It makes you think, well, if you if you need lower numbers of deer, why wouldn't your predators help you with that? So maybe for the next five years you don't trap and you just try to get the herd down. And once the herd's down, then you maybe think about trapping. Yeah. But because don't do both of them at the same time because I'm furious at does be, or I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm irritated because I have too many does. We need to shoot more does. But in the next breath, turn around and be like, we need to trap, we need to you, trap. If you understand the predator-prey cycle, if you have a ton of prey, they've been doing that. You're gonna have a ton of predators. Yeah, and that's what like turkeys, everything. When your prey populations explode, the product of that is that your predator populations explode. Yeah, I mean they work hand in hand, but at the same time, if you improve the habitat, you're creating a healthier ecosystem. Yeah. And here's the thing: God designed a perfect ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that we're, gets me. Like, we're 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 not gonna kill our way to a better ecosystem. No, must kill management. Must stop. You, we must <laughs> kill that management <laughs> style. And must kill management is a whole other podcast. But it's the idea that you must kill predators. You must kill invasives. You must kill. And we preach killing invasives, but must kill deer. Must kill um, weeds. Um, and by weeds, I mean the we- the common native weeds that we see in our food plots that we must kill. 
Um, Must-kill management is a is a mindset that you don't want to find yourself into because your blood pressure raises significantly every time you go to the farm. Just appreciate the ecosystem and the predator-prey relationship the way God designed it. Don't think that you're going to change it. You can't play God. You can't play the management, uh, the manager that can rule over. We, we're in the ecosystem. We're not managing the ecosystem. And by managing it, we're, we're replicating nature. We're edge feathering. We're managing our timber. We're using these resources with us. We're not trying to manage over them and, and be the pharaoh on top of the throne. And so getting back to edge feathering. <laughs> we could go we could go off on tangents for hours. I, I love edge feathering. It. So I asked you earlier, you rated it from a seven to a nine, uh, and I rated it an eight or a nine. And the only reason I don't rate it a ten is because it's not something that can be spread out over the entire landscape. And that's it's, what I it's don't specific think, to these I don't edge. think I would I would rate any habitat aspect a ten. At a ten solely by itself. Yeah. Because it's the the whole ecosystem depends on multiple yeah. facets of that. Yeah. You can't rate anything as a 10. Yeah. It's like if you rate something at the 10, you say, well, why don't I put that over the entire landscape? Yeah. Well, if you did that. You'd um, have no diversity. You'd have no. Like if you said edge feathering is a 10 and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to create that over the entire landscape. I'm going to just get shrubs everywhere. That'd be a tough property to hunt. And because there would just be. There'd be really no rhyme or reason to where they were at because they could move 10 yards and be in shrubs. Like, and, and, and you couldn't manage it effectively. You yeah. couldn't have grasses scattered in throughout an entire 100 acres mixed with... It would be a nightmare to manage. Yeah, it would be. I don't think it would be possible because the way the, uh, the clock ticks, everything's trying to grow out of early succession in a more mature stuff so it wouldn't take many years and you'd have nothing but shrubs and young forest to and then eventually trees and your shrubs and everything be choked out so i don't think you could do it but edge feathering is an eight i would say a, a solid eight for me um and 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 it really it's so great because it's so great for many species and it's year-round benefits but um you know for me i don't know as we wrap this up Overall, edge feathering is, is a management tool that it's better habitat, um, it's better food, it's better cover, and it's better immediately once done. And if you went to your farm and you edge feathered on a weekend, five years from now, that impact is still felt. Oh, yeah. It, it's like I say, if you stop planting a food plot one year, the next year, it may be more annual weeds. The but next it, year it's probably going to be really good. Yeah. It's going to be a bunch of ragweed. A and bunch of annual weeds that are very beneficial, but three years down the road it just goes back into old field, and it may never even look like a food plot. But if you edge feather something five years from now, it's it's still doing good. It's even if you edge. never sent a fire through it, you never grazed it, you never went back and did routine maintenance to knock some of those stump sprouts down, it would still be a softer edge than what it was when you cut it. And and that's why edge feathering is so great. That's why we're encouraging you guys to edge feather. Don't get don't get bombarded or don't get um, overwhelmed with going. Oh, I have way too much edge yeah. to edge feather. Well, do um, do and don't do. My my 
I guess, advice for you is don't go and think, I have to edge feather all my food plots this first year. Go do 50 yards along this food plot. Go do 50 yards along that food plot. That's why I said I would rather have that where it's a diversity of edges in each one. And it's it's one – I mean, we suffer from it all the time. I get bored with cutting the same spot all the time. Oh, hey, I I don't enjoy it. And that's why, like, around the farm, there aren't many areas that we haven't cut. Yeah, a little because it's like ah, oh, I think I'm gonna cut Burger Place today. I'm gonna yeah. cut Big Piney today. I'm gonna cut. And we jump around because then again, it's a, we have diversity throughout. That's right. So, guys, get out there and edge feather this time of year. Enjoy the enjoy the journey. Enjoy the work. That's just uh, for me. Transitioning out of, I enjoy this probably more than than one deer hunt. Now, I enjoy a deer hunt in October late October, early November, probably more than running a chainsaw for two months. But from September 15th, January 15th, that's that's deer season for us. That's archery season. Um, pick <laughs> the bad days when hunting is poor, when the conditions aren't great, and go do some edge feathering. And you'll, you'll, your hard work will be uh, long felt. So, guys, go subscribe to YouTube. Please help us out there, Land and Legacy. Um, and... Once again, thanks for always listening. Thanks for always uh, sending over your requests and and comments on Facebook. We appreciate it, Instagram even, and uh, we'll catch yeah. you next week.